Welcome to this week's episode of Compound Your Knowledge, where we review three research papers from our blog. Uh, this week, we're going to have a special guest, Doug Puglisi, joining us to cover a paper he wrote. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, we're going to first cover the two papers with Jack. The first paper was written by Larry Swedro, and it's titled, The Failure of Factor Investing Was Predictable. Hmm. This was a rebuttal to another paper that claimed factor investing has failed miserably. Those are some harsh words. So Larry starts off by going through a brief history of factor investing. Uh, Jack, can, can you just kind of outline that brief history of factor investing? Yeah, I mean, basically uh, what Larry went through was just, you know, originally there was just cap M where you had one factor, which was the market factor. Um, people realize maybe you need something else to help better explain cross section. So common French added, you know, value and momentum. Or sorry, value, not momentum. Yeah. Value and size, yeah. right? And you know, once they added those factors, um, you know, then there were all these other anomalies and factors that got added. Momentum being one of them. Right. Um, but you know, that's just the brief history. Um, and now nowadays, people are realizing that you know there really are only probably a handful of factors that actually worked. Right, but 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 hundreds of factors were... Um, Anomalies were failing. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. But, but how many of them are actually working in the real world is debatable. It's a small amount. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so Larry goes on to test the claim that small cap value and many other factors failed miserably. Uh, how, how, did he, how did he test that claim? Uh, and, and what were the results there? Yeah, so, so what Larry did was he just said, hey, you know, because, you know, there's also the recency bias. But what, what Larry did was he looked at the longest uh, running DFA funds yep. and how they did relative to their Vanguard uh, alternative, yep. right? So, like, in U.S., if it was large cap, did like, U.S. large cap value, yep. DFA against Vanguard, yep. just passive. And what he found is, you know, since inception, I think every DFA fund did better on a compound annual return basis than the Vanguard equivalent. Yeah. So, you know, he, he just wanted to highlight that at the outset to say that it's been a failure, maybe possibly be an overstatement. Yeah, yeah, right. And he looked at small cap value and micro cap value and uh, all the way down the line from DFA. Um, okay, so... Uh, so all, all the DFA funds outperformed Vanguard market cap weighted in Larry's uh, study. So Larry goes on to describe the idea that, that this, this uh, failure, that factor funds have failed, uh, has come from recency bias. Uh, what is recency bias and, and what does Larry show there? Yeah, so that's just overweighting, you know, more recent evidence yeah. um, and failure to account for, you know, the overall evidence. And so what he shows there is he looked at, hey, let's just look at all the DFA funds against Vanguard over the last 10 years, yeah. right? And what you find is in U.S., right, U.S. large value has lagged just buy and hold past, right? Um, and so, you know, that's part of the story of, hey, value is dead look, over the last 10 years, you know, it's underperformed, right. right? But then he also looked at other ones, like at international emerging markets. And, you know, what you find is on those uh, comparisons, the DFA funds did better. So, you know, if we're going to look at, you know, one 
event, which is U.S. large cap value, and say, okay, because of this one failure, value's dead. You know, he's saying that you we may be overreacting yeah. to that information. Yeah, not that's not that's not very robust. And uh, I, I guess he, he goes on to say in the paper, in case you are prepared to believe that. 10 years of little to no value premium in the U.S. means that the value premium is dead. Consider that there have been even longer periods in the U.S. where the market beta premium has been negative. Um, so 1920 to 1943, 1963 to 1982, and then, and then the 13 years from, from 2000 to 2012, um, to just the market beta premium was negative. Uh, so... Uh, he's, you know, and, and he says, hopefully you, you, you should not have given up belief on the equity premium in those periods. So don't give up belief on the, the factor premiums. Um, so Larry ends the paper with some sound investment tips. You can go uh, check that out further on our blog at alfarchitect.com. Um, the next paper we will cover, though, is titled Size and Value in China. This summary was written by Wes. Because China is so unique, a plausible research hypothesis is that traditional asset pricing models, such as the Fama French three-factor model, may not be appropriate for this, this unique economic environment. Jack, are size and value important factors in China? Yeah, so you know what they find in the paper is that those factors still help to better explain stock returns in China. Now, important there is they had to make some small adjustments relative to just using the standard like Farmer French methodology, right? So the first one was on the size factor. Um, the authors highlight the fact that, um, and I didn't know this until I read the paper, that you know they had they basically eliminated the bottom thirty percent of stocks mm. just from the sample, and then they created the size factor. And they highlight the reason is because in China there's a lot of restrictions on IPOs. Mm. So a lot of these, um, I think they said that I think about eighty six percent of uh, all of these what are called like reverse mergers occur in these bottom thirty yeah. percent. So these are kind of like shell companies, these really small caps. Um, that are just sitting around and then if you're a bigger company that wants to go public, you do a reverse merger into one of these like bottom 30% small companies and, and you kind of circumvent the IPO restrictions yeah. that China has. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so that, that was kind of one of the tricks around that they're not tricks, but how, how they had to reorganize the size factor. Uh, what about for value? Did they have to yeah. do anything different? So on this one, they used uh, like PE or you know earnings over price um, as opposed to book to market um, and you know that's just you know they talk about real briefly and then show that you know way back in the day you know Fahm and French did some tests to pick which value measure to use and they use book to market yep. they said hey we're gonna use a similar test to figure out which value measure to use in China they used PE right. so basically the two adjustments were one to the size factor um, eliminating the bottom 30% and then on value they use PE as opposed to book market. Right, because that is that is the Fama French three-factor model, right? Market size, value. Yes, and but they're saying there are some slight adjustments. But they're, yeah, right, in, in this China uh, study, there's there's just some adjustments. Okay, so, so why do we care whether the Fama French three-factor model works in China or not? Well, it's just another sample 
that highlights that historically those two factors, size and value, worked. Uh, but generally, they had a you know a, a positive premium associated with them. Right. So yeah, so so that's pretty interesting. Makes you know one one good way to figure out if, if results are robust when you're testing anything, right? The more sample data you can get your hands on. Um, so this is a potential out of sample uh, test. Okay. Um, so any other takeaways on, on that paper? Or? Yeah, well, just going back to this paper and then even kind of going back to Larry's paper, just tying the two together, right? One thing that's important to remember is like size and value, right? Um, you know, th these aren't factors like, like even if you ask DFA what they thought of size and value factors, they would say that they're risk factors, yeah. right? And so, you know, sometimes when people say, hey, smart beta, you know, is was predictably to go wrong, right? Well, that's, that, that's only true if you assume that's going to work all the time, right? right? But if size and value are risk factors, that means if you're investing and tilting your portfolio towards them, you're essentially you should be taking on a little bit more risk, mm -hmm. which means you know there's deviation in returns around it. So it's not going to work all the time. Got it. Okay. All right. Great. Um, so that that's what we got for with Jack this week. So now we'll we'll head in and uh, we'll grab Doug and, and go over his paper. All right. So the last paper that was on our blog this week that we're going to take a look at is written by Doug, and it was EBITDA, 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 that's all folks. Uh, Doug, what is the premise of this paper? I wouldn't exactly call it a paper <laughs> or a scholarly work. Yeah. It's more of a tongue-in-cheek effort to, uh, look, when I, when, I, uh, when I first read Quantitative Value back in like 2012, it first came to my attention that people were actually trying to figure out what metrics describe the value anomaly best. And I was kind of struck at that time that there was any question over it. And so that uh, little essay that I wrote was a tongue-in-cheek effort to try to relate the pain and agony and effort that investment bankers go through when they're bringing a company to market, whether to sell it or to issue securities, to relate that to the seeming mystery behind the enterprise value multiple. Right. And then to give some background, Doug was a former investment banker at uh, the legendary Bear Stearns. Ah, uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, so, no so he, has, he has direct hand knowledge in this. So, um, but, but, but so, so what do you mean that, that investment bankers would work so hard to, you know, create uh, EBITDA? Yeah, I mean, it, so again, bankers don't really create EBITDA. EBITDA is created by accountants. And, I and what is EBITDA? Take the liberty. Let's step back. EBITDA is a cash, flow, a cash flow that approximates, and in the pecking order of cash flow, you start at revenues and you kind of get all the way down to net income. It's a cash flow in the pecking order of line items that best approximates a company's ability to generate cash to do things like service debt. And that's really the principal metric for understanding debt service. In fact, all kind of credit and leverage multiples really focus on EBITDA's ability to cover things like fixed charges and so forth. So, so earnings before taxes, interest, earnings before interest, interest taxes, taxes, and depreciation. depreciation, amortization. And you can figure it from top down or from bottom up, but okay. Okay. Right. And, and so why, why would these investment bankers work so hard? Like why, why did they well, prefer that metric or, you know, what was the... So there's, there is, um, a great deal of work to make sure that when a business issues debt securities, for example, it does not immediately go out and default on the bonds that they've just issued. 
And in order to do that, in order to make sure that that's the case, the firms spend a lot of time trying to both ensure that there are no defaults, but also to protect their reputations. And they do that by really scrutinizing estimates and projections for EBITDA for businesses that come to market. And that analysis that bankers develop is really kind of scrutinized from every angle imaginable. And there's some very talented people that spot uh, problems with those numbers early in the process of the deal so that the deal team can focus its diligence on behalf of the company in areas of critical importance. So this is to, to service debt even as good, but also also for acquisition, you're saying? Yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of clients of banks are private equity firms, and they buy pri- primarily through their ability to leverage the companies, the assets that they're buying. And so when they acquire, EBITDA is central, typically central to the analyses that they undergo in terms of paying, uh, paying price. And so getting EBITDA right for them is also pretty important. So it gets a lot of scrutiny. I mean, think about this. When a stock falls out of bed and misses earnings estimates, it might feel like the world's falling apart, but really nothing much is going on. These are the residual cash flows to shareholders. When a company defaults on a bond, that is the end of the world in many respects. And so trillions of dollars of debt are issued are issued, and need to be serviced by essentially this cash flow line on EBITDA. Right. Once they can't pay their debt, they're bankrupt. Uh, well, not bankrupt per se, uh, so much as embarrassed, really. I mean, a default means the bonds have lost 20% of their value, and uh, all kinds of other bad things start to happen. Companies, people come out of the woodwork and <laughs> disrupt the company's operations. Uh, yeah, yeah, just defaulting on a bond. But, um, okay, so uh, what other takeaways from the paper? Uh, what, what other message we got to get here? None other than that uh, when I say it's written in blood, it pretty much is written in blood. <laughs> it's written in human blood, the blood of the people who are staying up late, and we're trying to make the models balance, and we're doing all the hard work behind it. Okay. Yes. okay. So. All right, and, and, and what, what was the title of the paper one more time? Ibadai, uh, Ibadai, that's all, folks. Okay, all right. That's all, folks, for this week, then. Uh, we'll see you guys again next week. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities, or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty Express or implied is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC. All rights reserved.